listeners, I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Amy Butler Greenfield, author of the brand new release, The Woman All Spies Fear, a young adult biography about Elizabeth Smith Friedman. Friedman is renowned as America's first female crypt analyst who pioneered code breaking in both world wars and in between helped break up a ring of smugglers during prohibition. Early acclaim about The Woman All Spies Fear has been through the roof with both Publishers Weekly and Kirkus giving the book starred reviews, describing it as captivating, informative, and entertaining. Amy, thank you so much for joining me on my show, all the way from Oxford, England. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, Amy, I devoured The Woman All Spies Fear. I absolutely love this book. If I had to describe it in one word, I would declare it unputdownable. So, Elizabeth Smith Friedman, can you start by giving me a highlight reel of this amazing woman's achievements as a code breaker? Oh, she was just extraordinary. Um, She's a farm girl from Indiana, so she's really coming from nowhere. Nobody's expecting this kind of brilliant career from her. But she gets involved a year or so out of college in a kooky kind of project to find codes and ciphers in Shakespeare. She moves on from that um, straight into becoming one of the lead co-breakers for the United States during World War I. She trains many of the officers in the army who take up code breaking. So she's helping to create the military code breaking institution in the United States. She then, after that is going on, she's breaking codes for the Coast Guard and the Treasury at a time when there was prohibition, when and the other side was the mob and gangsters. And she does a superb job at that. It's so good that she ends up becoming one of the most famous code breakers in the world. And then World War II comes along and she goes dark. But we now know that she was involved in breaking up spy rings in South America. And she was needing to break Enigma, the Nazis code that was thought by many to be unbreakable. But she's working on that. She also helps establish America's first spy agency, the precursor to the CIA. She's working on all their secret communication systems. She sets up the IMF. Almost everywhere you look, you see her footsteps. You know, listening to you talk and, of course, having read the book, we'd almost have to rewrite our entire recent history if it wasn't for Elizabeth Smith Friedman. But how did you land on her as the subject for this most recent writing project of yours? Well, I have known about Elizabeth Friedman for a very long time and in a very unusual way. When I was about 10, we moved into an old house that had only been owned by one family before us, and they kept everything. The house was built in 1902. And if you went up in the attic, there were all kinds of things there, including magazines. And I was a reader. I would read anything I could get my hands on. And so I read those old magazines. And in one of them from 1937, there was a Reader's Digest with a big profile of this co-breaker, Elizabeth Smith Friedman. And 
I was fascinated. So I just thought, this is really cool. I'd love to learn more about her. And I looked in the library, there wasn't anything. But I did read other stories. I've read all kinds of stuff about the FBI, about World War II codebreakers. And I think it's part of the beginning of just what became my career. I just love digging up stuff about the past. And then when I had my daughter, um, when she was very young, I mean, seven, eight or so, she just became fascinated by code breaking. And they were pretty simple codes at that time. But we lived close to Bletchley, which was the center for World War II code breaking here in the UK. It's where they broke Enigma. And we took her there. We took her to some other exhibitions. And we came out of one of them. And she had loved it all. But then she turned to me and she said, Mommy, were there any girl codebreakers. Yes, yes, there were. And you should know about them. Everybody should know about them. And that started me digging again um, into Elizabeth Friedman's life. And I was just amazed by what I found. Why do you think she was so good at codebreaking? There are certain skills that you need to have as a codebreaker. One of them is simply patience. And another one is persistence. The best codebreakers can just stick with the problem for a very long time, and they're very methodical, and they make sure that they cover all of the bases, and they don't get flustered, and they don't just start madly scribbling things. The way we portray it in the movies is very different from how it actually is. You have to have a lot of self-discipline, which she had in spades. And then there's this opposite characteristic that you need, and that is just the ability to make intuitive leaps, the ability to spot patterns almost pluck them out of thin air. So that's partly that process of just going very carefully over every single detail, but then being able to jump. And she could do both. And she had a superb sense of intuition and a superb ability to recognize patterns. That's just not given to everybody. She trained a lot of code breakers and she could see often early on that this person, diligent as they were, would never be a code breaker. They just didn't have that extra ability to make those leaps. And I think in the end, that's really what sets her apart. Hmm. Maybe that female intuition gave her an edge. The book's subtitle is Elizabeth Smith Friedman and Her Hidden Life. Can you explain why you chose that phrase, her hidden life, as part of your subtitle? There are a couple of reasons. One of them is that a lot of the work that she did was top secret. That's part of why it got lost. And there are also people who claim the credit that she should have gotten. So there are ways in which her life was obscured. It's why we didn't have biographies, you know, when I went looking for them on the shelf. When I was a kid, they weren't there because really she had been forgotten and half of what she did just never made it out of the classified files. But the other thing that I found as I was working on this was that she herself had certain parts of her life that were a closed book that she didn't talk about. I think we probably all have those sides of our life that are that way. And she was not somebody who spoke easily and freely about the personal sides of her life, her childhood. She was almost silent about her marriage was really wonderful in many ways, very thoroughly modern marriage that was really the mainspring for both her and her husband. But she didn't want to comment about that publicly either. But what she did do was she left this huge archive. And in that, she left diaries. She left love letters. 
it's as though she was saying, ultimately, when I'm gone, I do want this story to be told. She could have burned those. She could have gotten rid of everything, but she didn't. And so to me, I felt very much that that was part of my job was to help uncover those sides of her life as well. This book is not just a remarkable history of Elizabeth and her work. It's also a love story between her and her husband, William Friedman. Can you talk a little bit about that unconventional relationship? Well, Elizabeth and William met at a place called Riverbank. This is where Elizabeth got the really oddball job of trying to find secret ciphers in Shakespeare's first folio. That was a story unto itself. (laughs) Exactly. So she has this very eccentric job that she quickly realizes there's something wrong about this. This just isn't making sense. But she doesn't want to tell her boss because she thinks he's going to fire her. He's running this research center. He's a millionaire, a man with a terrible temper. Uh, She does tell one other employee there. She tells this young scientist named William Friedman. And the two of them together really start studying cryptology seriously. William becomes very interested in this too. He's also very interested in Elizabeth. And it's less than a year from then, they are together heading up this department to solve all of these World War I ciphers and codes for all these different departments. Extraordinary responsibility put on the shoulders of these 20-somethings. Um, Within a month of working across from each other, just, you know, pushing so hard to break every code that they are sent, and they're sent sackfuls every day. Um, A month into this, they get married. And it's a radical marriage. I mean, he is Jewish. She is this conservative church of God farm girl. Um, It's not what anybody's expecting. Um, She isn't even entirely sure that she is in love. She is really worried that marriage could be a trap. She she likes him enormously. He's so close to her. She calls him her comforter, but she doesn't know quite how this is going to turn out. And within less than a month, she too is madly in love. It is an incredible partnership between two very bright, very ambitious, but very thoughtful people as well. So they do embark on what is really a very modern marriage. And for some of the time they are working together, for a whole lot of it, they are each in different divisions of military code breaking, and they're not allowed to share what they do. It's an extremely close marriage, but it's also one in which there are these chasms that they can't bridge where you can't say what your day was like. You can't say what's worrying you at work. And the problems they're dealing with at work are colossal. So it was just a fascinating marriage. And reading their love letters, I just, I wept uh, there in the archive. And it was so beautiful. Yeah, the depth of their relationship was astounding. And particularly because they had to keep so many professional secrets from each other. Amy, would you mind sharing a short passage from the book? Something that, for whatever reason, strikes your fancy as the author? I'd be happy to do that. I'm going to take something from very close to the beginning. Like a code or cipher, Elizabeth could appear ordinary on the surface. To get her true measure, you must delve deeper, the way a code breaker would, searching for the truth that lies just out of sight. Elizabeth did not have an easy start in life, yet she rose to become one of the most formidable code breakers in the world, the scourge of gangsters and spies. How did she do it? Ambition and grit played a part, but she needed opportunity too. She found it in a library, 
and in one of the strangest job offers of the century. <laughs> well, if that isn't the best teaser for a book, I don't know what is. Why did you choose that passage? I chose it partly because it does um, let you get a sense of how important Elizabeth was. But what's even more important to me about that passage is the idea of thinking about Elizabeth and her life as a kind of code and one that you have to study the way code breakers do. The more I worked on this book, the more I could see I was needing those same skills, that patience. I think it's Robert Caro, the biographer, who says, turn every page. And I did that in the archives. And I found important stuff in there. And I think nobody had seen it before because it is tedious going through all the scrap bits of paper. So that's the kind of thing a co-breaker has to do. You have to look at everything. And then you have to be willing when it doesn't come clear to say, okay, I'm going to put it all down again. And I'm going to look at it again from a different direction. Perhaps Elizabeth was sitting on your shoulder as your inspiration. Is there one question that you so wish you could ask Elizabeth that you couldn't untangle or decode from your research? I think what I would most like to know is there's a point in the winter of 37, 38, where we know just from one letter that her husband writes that at the very height of her fame, she was ready to chuck it all in. She wanted to quit and to stay at home. Why did she feel that way? And it led me into looking at all kinds of deep, dark, secret chambers in American intelligence history to work out what the pressures were, what the problems were. But if I could talk to her about it and say, what exactly was going on in that winter? What was the final straw? Um, what, what pushed you in that direction? And then what made you pull back in the end, despite a really terrible time that she's having that year, she decides to stay. And that's what propels her into World War II code-breaking and taking on this very important mission in South America. But that's clearly a year of crisis, and I'd love to hear about it directly from her. Can you imagine if she was able to extricate herself from her profession and had retired? We would have a very different map of the world, I think. I think so, and I think it's one of those moments that a lot of us have you get to these places where you're in a in a dark wood, um, where it can feel like there's no clear choice, maybe no good choice. And you have to make really important decisions about what path you take next. And I always love to read about that in novels, but I especially love to read about it in history and biography because there it feels very real to me. And I can see in real life, what kinds of choices are people making? And those help influence me as I have to make those decisions myself. Well, I could obviously talk about Elizabeth Friedman all day, but I'm equally interested in your career trajectory. I know you're an award-winning scholar and you studied modern history at Oxford. So how did you go from studying history and probably likely a path of teaching to writing and authorship? Well, what really knocked me off that path of an academic life, which is where I was headed, is that um, when I was in my mid-20s, I suddenly found that I wasn't able to walk and use my hands. And 
things got rapidly um, just worse and worse to the point where almost no joint in my body was working very well. It's hard even to eat. And it took quite a while to get a diagnosis. But in the end, I was diagnosed with lupus. And at the time, they said, you know, if I made it to 30, that would be great. Oh, that wow. in, in an afternoon, it changes your life. And one of the things that I realized then, you know, I was, I was in the middle of my PhD dissertation and I thought if I only have a short time left, what I'd really love to do, what I regret is that I didn't try to write a book that just ordinary people would read. And all my life, I've been a reader. Books have been how I've understood the world. They've added so much to my life. And I just wanted to try that myself, um, to be the writer of one of those books. And once you see that, and you realize that you have very limited time and energy, I started writing when I still couldn't use my hands, and they just started with speech dictation software. And so you really had to be able to do alpha, bravo, all the way through the alphabet, a lot of the time to make yourself understood to the machine. I learned that alphabet so I could do it, sometimes letter by letter. That's how much I wanted to write. And in the end, I had the chance to go back to the PhD, but by then I realized, no, I think I'm a different kind of writer. And that's what I've been. I have written children's books as well as history, but pretty much everything I've ever done, history is just a big, big part of it. It's so inspiring. You just alluded to the breadth of your work. I mean, you wrote a book called A Perfect Red, which is an award-winning history of red dye, but you also have this ongoing children's series called Raw the Mighty, who's this spoiled cat and his dung-obsessed beetle sidekick who solved mysteries together. So you write nonfiction and young adult novels and kid mysteries how do you gravitate to your next project? I mean, do you just follow your nose or how do you pick the next subject you're going to tackle? I mostly follow my nose. That's a good way of putting it. I do make some decisions just based on practical limitations that I have. After I wrote A Perfect Red, I had my daughter. And at that point, I was quite ill again for a number of years. And I had a small child and the kind of research you have to do for you know, serious historical research, you've got to be able to travel to archives usually for a number of weeks. And to do the perfect red book, I was in the States, in Mexico, and some of my sources were from Spanish archives, um, British ones, you just, you have to be able to travel. And I could see that kind of travel didn't make a lot of sense. And so I thought, well, my other love has been children's fiction. So, yes, so I headed back in that direction. And the Ra the Mighty Detective series in ancient Egypt, that absolutely comes out of just having so much fun reading so many of the books I loved to my daughter and my daughter's very great love for cats. (laughs) Uh, But it's been such a great pleasure to be able to get back to writing the kind of work that does have me digging in archives. I lose myself in archives. I just, to work with the original sources, to work with those diaries, those letters, it's a passion of mine. And now that my daughter is older, it's possible to do some of that work again. Amy, I have one last question for you. If you were to write a six-word memoir, what would it be? Oh, this is such a great question. Um, I think it would be 
Treasure Seeker Digging Up the Past. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you chose that as your memoir? Certainly when I'm in those archives, when I'm I'm piecing things together, um, the feeling that you get when something suddenly makes sense or when you suddenly get that piece that makes everything fall into place, it is to me like finding buried treasure. And I also feel this really great commitment to people who have been forgotten, people like Elizabeth Friedman who have been overlooked. The seeking part is just as important as the treasure, that going to find what's been lost and trying to bring it back, trying to restore it. That's really important to me. Well, I would argue that the woman all spies fear is a treasure unto itself. I want to thank you, Amy, for being a guest on my show. And I would say that you and this latest subject, Elizabeth Smith Friedman, have one thing in common, that you really both are truly inspiring women. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you a bit better. And congratulations on this brand new, amazing book. Oh, thank you. It's truly been a delight to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Amy, her brand new release, The Woman All Spies Fear, and her other acclaimed books, please visit her website, amybutlergreenfield.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, JoniBCole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.